If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today's guest is Joan Gary, an internationally recognized champion of the nonprofit sector. She started her nonprofit career in 1997 as the executive director of GLAAD, one of the largest LGBTQ rights organizations in the world. When she started, though, you got to hear this. There were only 18 staff members and, believe it or not, $360 in the bank. And I'd be willing to bet that was not enough to cover the payroll for those 18 staff members. In the eight years she was there, she grew the organization to 40 staff, a budget of $8 million. And I have to say, this is every nonprofit's dream, $1.5 million in cash reserves. When she left GLAAD, she went on to found the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is a community of nonprofit leaders, and she also founded her own consulting company, Joan Gary Consulting. I've always said for those of us that are former chief executives, consulting always seems like the promised land, and, and so that's often what we transition into. Now, in addition to these pursuits... Joan maintains a blog on her website, joangary.com. She has authored Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership because nonprofits are messy. And believe it or not, she also has time to host her own podcast, which if you're not subscribing to, you should. Nonprofits are messy. Joan and I have many areas of overlap. We both do consulting. We both coach. We both blog. We both host a podcast. We also both do a lot of work with boards, and I'll share with you, we've got some similar areas of expertise like LGBTQ plus organizations. And combined, we have faced nearly every imaginable problem a nonprofit could face. We have tried multiple strategies to address those problems. I won't say Joan has done this, but I will say not all of my strategies have worked out and I've had to pivot and figure out some other strategy. And so we've seen the variety of outcomes that come out with those strategies. So I thought that we could bring our combined knowledge to this episode of the podcast, kind of discuss the state of nonprofits today, some common dilemmas that we think nonprofits are facing, and I have no doubt that we're going to touch on boards as well. Hey, Joan, welcome to the podcast. 
Hey, Dolph, it's delightful to be with you. Well, thank you. I'm so thrilled to have you on. And I kind of want to just start by asking, what do you wish funders understood about their grantees? Oh, good question. I love a good question. You and I are both in the business of working with nonprofit organizations and do a lot of strategy work. So you'd probably agree with me when I say that the key about strategy is not in the answers, but in the good questions. So I'll grab your good question and go. You know, I think funders know a lot about nonprofit organizations. So I just actually I want to tip my hat to folks who are out there who are generous and philanthropic and say a lot of people really get what nonprofit grantees are all about and what they need. What do I wish I wish that funders, I'm going to go with two things. I wish that funders would pay more attention to the relationship between a grantee's staff and the grantee's board. It is my philosophy that a really good nonprofit is kind of like a twin engine jet. And there are two engines. There's a staff engine and a board engine. And sitting in the cockpit is the executive director and the board chair. And I wish that funders would spend more time hanging out in that cockpit, understanding the needs, the challenges, and the opportunities from the vantage point of those co-pilots. I have seen so many organizations that struggle because of challenges at the board level, some of which are created by the board, some of which are created by the staff. We'll talk about that. But I just I want funders to help organizations build two solid engines. The second thing I wish funders knew about grantees, this may seem a little out of left field, Dolph, but I am more and more convinced that social media, digital outreach, your website, how you engage and mobilize people online has nothing to do with overhead. That it is actually your ability to engage and mobilize and bring people close to your organization is core program work. That it's not overhead at all. And I really wish that grantees could make that case more cogently to funders and that they would hear that, that we are so past the days of the website as sort of the storefront And that the digital presence an organization has and how it uses it is the core to its power, core to its ability to have an impact. And I'm sorry, I'm tired of people saying, well, I can't do that because my funders, they don't cover overhead. I'd like to see us bust that myth. I'm right there with you on the overhead piece. I've also got to, though, jump in and say, especially now, like you and I are both kind of sheltering in place. COVID-19 is happening. It's May. Especially right now, organizations without a digital presence don't have a presence. Oh, my goodness. It is absolutely correct. And it is the way. I mean, separate and apart from the good old fashioned way, which is that thing that used to have a dial tone, right? The phone. It is the way to keep your people close. It is the way to, in fact, grow the number of people who know about your work. And as troubling as these times are, and as much as nonprofits are struggling, they're doing remarkable, heroic things on small budgets. And it is what feeds me during this time that People might say we're a little bit short in the world of leadership, but not at all from where I stand. And I'm sure that's true for you as well, is that there are 
1.5 million nonprofits in this country. And if you take just the ED and the board share of each of them, I mean, what is it, 12.3 million jobs in the nonprofit sector? These folks are superheroes right now. And the stories of what they are doing on limited budgets and decreasing resources, that is leadership any way you slice it. Oh my gosh, yeah. Could not agree more. I also share, though, I kind of feel like some funders felt burned in the 80s and 90s by the overhead of technology and marketing and as the internet was coming in. And I think some funders maybe have not yet moved past that sense of, gee, you know, in the early 90s, we had lots of organizations pitching us these great technology solutions and they didn't work out. And so we don't really fund technology solutions anymore. That may be true. I also, again, you and I were talking about this before you hit the record button. A lot of this rests at the feet of the leadership of the organization. How are you going to talk about your work to a funder? How are you going to make the case for what a digital presence means, how central it is, and frankly, how central it was three months ago, not just because of the now of COVID-19. I really think that executive directors need to be really thoughtful about how to make the best possible case for funding in a way that educates and inspires their program officers or their funders. We've been doing a lot of conversations with clients about can I ask for money now in the middle of all of this? And some people have to, and then you do. But what you have to do is come from, not from a place of scarcity or begging, but from a place of, I'm at point A right now, and I see point B. It's out there ahead of me. And I want to go there because I have a wait list or because I know hearts and minds are changing. And I need a bridge to get from A to B. And I need you to help me do that. But if there hasn't a really great picture of B, it's going to be harder. And so I think this is why I talk a lot about the best leaders being great storytellers, because that is, to me, what differentiates the person who runs an organization from the person who leads one. Absolutely. I will say in terms of how organizations are communicating with funders, I do feel right now that there are institutional funders like foundations and some government agencies that are actively looking for good solutions they can invest in. If an organization, especially one who's been funded by them before, approaches them and says, hey, in order for us to be able to do digital outreach that allows us to achieve our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals this year, we need to implement this app or revise this on our website, and here's what's going to cost. I think there's a ton of foundations out there right now that are going to fund that. It's very funny that this morning I was up early. I'm interviewing the head of the Walton Family Foundation for my own podcast next week. Really anxious to understand how found big foundations are thinking about things from bailouts to recovery to capacity building to how do we get nonprofits back to the fundamentals. I was thinking a lot about people who are run small nonprofits and nonprofit leadership lab, which is a an online membership site that I run for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. And we've got about 3000 members from around the world. I hear it all. Should I call my program officer to ask for emergency funding? And the answer to that question for me is, what's your relationship been like with your program officer? And have you cultivated and stewarded the relationships that matter in your organization. And this is one of those things that there just never seems to be time for. 
And I think that in the world on whatever, I'm not saying when the pandemic is over, I, the only way I can describe it is sort of like on the other side, on the other side, the strong nonprofits will have taken advantage of this catastrophic time to begin to do that cultivation and stewardship and bring their people close so that in that next moment of challenge or opportunity, there's a real relationship there that it is not transactional. That's what I'd really like to see happen. Again, the Michael Hyatt, the leadership guru, talks about what does challenge make possible? And I see a lot, I'm sure you do too. I've been seeing a lot of that possibility, but I also think much of the strength of the next chapter for nonprofits will rest in good old fashioned fundamentals. Amen. And it's interesting. I was quoting Harvey McKay just yesterday with a client and he wrote a book called Dig the Well Before You're Thirsty. And I think very much when you're having when you're thinking about having conversations with program officers or major donors, this is not the time for someone to hear from you the very first time. This is the time for you to be having conversations with people that you already have relationships with. Completely true. And this, by the way, the thing I've been preaching a lot of, and we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of a board of directors, the board that is currently in the midst of this crisis hibernating or frozen or some combination thereof can be called into action as additional ambassadors to bring your tribe close. I'm a huge fan of this before the COVID-19 crisis, giving each board member a portfolio of donors or volunteers or program officers. And right now, just getting the old fashioned phone, calling them, ask them how they're doing. Thank them for their support. Have a story at the ready in case they want to hear one. No ask, no solicitation. That's it. I had a member of our leadership lab who did this. And the person said, boy, you must be struggling. Brooklyn Children's Theater. And she said, we are struggling. We actually have moved from a performing arts. We're going to do a kid's movie. And it was really cool and creative. And the guy said, that's really smart, but I'm sure you're struggling. You know, I'd really like to talk to my wife. And can you call me back tomorrow? Now, she didn't make an ask. All she was doing was checking in. Our, She called that person first thing the next morning, as you and I would have, as any good CEO. And the husband and wife made a $50,000 pledge on the phone. That's what happens, right? It's build those relationships, steward them. This is how, and boards can do exactly the same thing. And by the way, if you actually create a stewardship program with your board right now, 12 months from now, those 10 people in that person's portfolio, they're layup renewals, layup renewals. And then what happens is your board member has tasted the success of making an ask. And that's gold. Totally, 100% agree with you. And I think it's such a simple thing to implement. It really just starts by sharing your major donor list with all of your board and say, who do you know? So if they've already got the relationship, if they already know five people, that's half of their list of 10 right there. Correct. To me, like that is such a simple thing to do. The other thing I wanted to jump on, though, you talked about that couple that the very next morning made a $50,000 gift. And I actually think there's a unique group of donors that are 
essentially recession resistant. And it's the group of donors that have a donor advised fund they control. And I think way too many of us in the nonprofit sector are afraid to ask for money right now, but not everybody is hurting. And as I said, some folks, a lot of our major donors actually have donor advised funds. They're not worried about, oh, we can't spend out of our donor advised fund because we may not be able to pay our mortgage next year. They can't use their donor advised fund for that. I'm with you about this, Dolph, about who can be philanthropic at this time. And I don't even think it's just folks with donor advised funds. So my friend Sylvia, who was the board chair of a big organization called God's Love We Deliver for a long time, she's sheltering in place on her own and not going out to eat. And she's a theater goer and she's not spending money on theater tickets. And so she's taking that money and she's donating it a little bit here and there. She'll get an email from somebody and she'll say, oh, yeah, I love this organization. And boom, 50 bucks. So remember, some people are actually saving money. Now, Sylvia is retired, so she has some of that, but she's not a person of great wealth. The second thing is you're absolutely right, is that that there are people who really want to help and are able to. Hopefully, there are some of those folks in your circle of stakeholders, I think the last thing to remember, and it's that when I first started at GLAAD, you referenced it, I'd never been in the nonprofit world. I had never asked anyone for money before in my life, not even my mother. Actually, especially not my mother, because I knew that she would say no with a little edge. But my development director at the time is still a dear friend, Julie Anderson from L.A. She just said to me, you know, it makes people feel really good to give money to causes they care about. And being the ultimate pleaser personality that most nonprofit executive directors are, I was like, really? Okay, let's do this. And so you also have to remember, you're giving somebody an opportunity to feel a sense of meaning and purpose. And I have to tell you, in a time like this where I can't walk around outside without a mask and gloves on, where most people are living with some form of chronic anxiety disorder, where I have had to come to grips with the fact that I'm out about a lot of things in my life, but I'm now officially out as an older American. (laughs) But I'm an older American with underlying conditions. So I have like a big fat bullseye on my behind. I am at a place in my life where I am about as vulnerable as I feel like I have ever been. And one of the reasons I love what I do is because it fills me with a sense of meaning and purpose and hope. That's what you can do for a donor. That's what you can do for a volunteer who make the space safe and have somebody do some meal prep or whatever it might be, or figure out a way to get a volunteer involved remotely. You're giving them a gift, the gift of meaning and purpose and hope. And right now, those things are in short supply and people are desperate for them. Oh, without a doubt. I wanted to throw out a tip for folks. It's not a tip that I have. I stole it from someone that you and I both know, Richard Burns. So yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, we both know Richard. One of the things Richard and, and Richard would publicly talk about doing this. I'm not doing anything that I think he'd be embarrassed by. When he was the ED over at the LGBT Center, in New York, he was there for about 25 years. He created this ritual where he took an hour every week to call prospects and donors. Because as CEOs, we always have a way of putting that off. Sometimes we have anxiety, even though we know it's going to be a great experience, we have anxiety before it starts. And so he used to have someone in on his development team come and sit with him 
hand him his call cards. Now, admittedly, we're talking a few years ago because they're call cards, but hand him his call cards and would just sit there and just kind of be like his accountability partner, make sure that he actually sat there and did it. But whatever trick it is that we need, just an hour a week with your donors, whether you're the chief executive or the board chair or a board member, makes such a big difference. Because I run this large membership site and I can't have touch points with 3,000 people, right? So my digital marketing partner introduced me to an app called Bonjoro, B-O-N-J-O-R-O. And it is a way for me to send a customized video via email to any one of my 3,000 members. And so my team every Wednesday sends me my Bonjoro list. And my Bonjoro list, which is sitting right here on my desk somewhere, it might be something we learned about one of our members who had had a bad day. One of our members had a baby. We just brought in a couple hundred new members the other day. And so we've identified a couple of them just to welcome, let us know what you need. It's a one-way communication for sure. But the open rate, the click-through rate is off the charts. So if you're a larger organization that engages with a lot of volunteers for the CEO, I'm going to tell you, I can rattle through about 20 of them in about 25 minutes now that I've got the hang of it. It's just a quick one minute video. They feel really, really wonderful for people to receive. Look for those ways that you can engage with people in new ways. I mean, that is one of the things that sheltering in place has caused us to think differently about how we connect and stay connected. I'm actually going to have to check out Bonjoro, and I may have to suggest that to some folks. That is such a great idea. I have one client that at the end of the year, and I love the fact that they did this, the executive director took a day the last week of the year and wrote thank you on the whiteboard and then wrote donors' names below it, took a selfie and texted it to them. And like, it feels personal because it's coming from someone's personal cell phone. And I was like, that is such a golden thing to do. And what's more, a lot of the donors would text back, thanks, hope you're having a good New Year's or whatever. Like it was a really golden thing to do. Back in the very early days of GLAD, when I didn't really have a lot of money in the bank, then we were talking about holiday gifts for donors. And I was like, I refuse to send a donor a coffee mug. I don't have the money for it. As God is my witness, as long as I'm the CEO of a nonprofit, we will never send coffee mugs. And so Julie, my development director, said, let's just really make a really cool, clever holiday card. And then you just write personal notes to all donors of X amount and above. We took our kids skiing and neither of us ski. So we just kind of sat at the lodge and I had my Irish coffee and I just started writing notes. I didn't realize that there were like 250 notes I had to write. And so that was a lot of Irish coffees and a lot of notes, but we sent them off. And as it turned out, the note cards arrived concurrently with another large LGBT organization's coffee mugs. And <laughs> you know you scored when you get a thank you note for your thank you note, but I can't even tell you how many notes I got saying thank you for your thank you note and thank you for not sending me a coffee mug. High touch is everything. And it's a really ironic thing that you can actually create high touch even if you are socially distant. Oh, absolutely. You 100% can. And creativity counts. Like creativity 100% counts. Totally right. Before you didn't have enough time, 
time precludes creativity in some ways, right? Like if I don't have enough time, I just have to do things the way it's gotten me this far, whatever it is. We're like at this different place where whatever it is that's gotten you this far probably isn't actually going to get you wherever it is you want to go. I've had people who've said, I never used to start my staff meetings asking people how they were doing. And now because I'm on Zoom, we do that. And I feel like I have much more of a team than I did before. Well, duh. (laughs) Right, right. Absolutely. I will say, I think in terms of being high touch and being creative, it's also just so critical that it's authentic to us. If you're not someone who takes selfies, don't do the selfie with a whiteboard because it's not authentic to you. And admittedly, I'm not a huge selfie person, so I probably would not do that. But like for me, and this is really authentic to me, for years, I've loved sending people birthday cards. What I don't do is I don't buy three generic birthday cards. Some of them I actually make myself. But like whenever I'm in a store, I'm like, ooh, birthday cards. And, And I'm always looking for birthday cards. I now have a birthday card list of like 700 and something people. And every Sunday, I sit down for about an hour or so, and I write cards to people, some people who literally like, you know, maybe I've not talked to them in six months, but I send them this card. I'll also share with you, because again, like this is just genuinely me. I'm a crafter, which is also why I make some of the cards. But like, I also go on USPS.com and I buy stamps that I like. So modern art stamps or some other stamp. And so like when you get a birthday card from me, it looks like real personal communication because it is. And it has an actual like, not hope you have a happy birthday, but an actual note to the person in it. And I love doing it. It's genuine to me. One of my recent blog posts, I call this channeling your inner cousin Jean. So my cousin Jean lives in Atlanta in Duluth. And she's always been like the most thoughtful person in the room. And I get my three kids who are in their 20s, they generally remember my birthday. So I generally get a phone call. But my cousin Jean sends me a card and it arrives on my birthday, which means she had to actually think that it was my birthday was coming up. The second thing that she does, which is really, really swell, it's so cheap to do these things. She knows that like, Mr. Rogers is kind of like my spirit animal. And so she'll go to eBay, get like a vintage Mr. Rogers book and have it sent to me. What do you think it costs? Two bucks, three bucks, something like that. And, you know, the book just says you are special. That's it. And it's like it's golden. And again, time for nonprofit leaders, time is not your friend in some ways, right? You think everything is urgent. I have to run as fast as I can to save as many people as I can in the shortest possible span of time. And if we have learned nothing else, I'd like to think that we've learned that the work is a marathon and not a sprint and that we've got to stop and pause. We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to take care of our own. We have to nurture our tribe. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be generous. All of those things, by the way, that led your listeners to say, I would like to be a nonprofit leader, right? I think this about this all the time. All the attributes that make nonprofit leaders are, those are the core attributes that will get any of us through this creative, generous, problem solver, right? Can't sit idly by. All of these things, these are the attributes that are going to make the difference between the people that that come out on the other side of this and feel a sense of gratitude and joy, the people who actually feel victimized by it. I really feel like your listeners can really literally lead the way. Absolutely. 
we in the nonprofit sector are part of the solution. And it's why we're in this sector, because we want to be part of the solution. We're not bystanders. Not at all. Nope. We are not at all happy to sit out in the stands. We want to be on the field. And I just want to say that I just feel like whether it's by writing a check or whether it's volunteering or however you can engage people at this time, people are really hungry to get the hell out of the stands. And they admire you for being on the field. And if you invite them to come onto the field and give them a kind of a way in, that's a gift to them. Right. Absolutely. Joan, I want to make sure we save some time for the off the map question. And this gives listeners an opportunity to learn a little more about you as a person. And so I have to ask you, how did you come to sing with the New York City Gay Men's Chorus? Okay, that is an off the map question. It's actually, Joan went off the map actually in doing that. So when I left GLAAD in the summer of 2005, and I left because my kids were in junior high and moving into high school, I knew the road would not be easy. And I think older kids need you more than younger kids in some ways. I was thinking that I was really going to miss being a part of the LGBT community in in a formal kind of way. I also knew that I was going to need some self-care because if I thought taking care of LGBT people was a lot, taking care of your three kids and dragging them through high school is just a, (laughs) that's a climb. And so I wanted to do something that I had not been doing in a long time, which was singing. I think a major gifts officer at GLAAD, a guy named Peter Caborn, who's in D.C. in the nonprofit education field now, his husband was the ED of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. And I was just joking with him one day. And I said, you know, I'm going to need a community when I leave GLAAD. Maybe I should talk to your husband about joining the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. And we started to laugh and we just started to scheme it up. And and then I thought, why couldn't I? Like, it's such a remarkable community of people So I just decided to audition. I have a good singing voice. I think they also really needed 10 or 1. So I don't think it's all about me. And it was something I could do every Monday night where my phone went off. And that if there was a drama at home or a homework assignment that needed to be done, like I just wasn't dealing with it for that three and a half hours. It also became something of an homage to my dad, who was a singer in the Greensboro, North Carolina barbershop chorus. And it was also like 200 guys in lime green tuxedos who sang Barbershop. And he did it every single Monday night also. I never thought about it until after he passed away that I had followed in his singing footsteps. He was also a tenor one, I think. And then I jokingly say that it was an opportunity for me to learn how to stick out and blend all at the same time. Mm hmm. And it's a really wonderful, wonderful group. It also has wonderful traditions. And music is a really, really powerful way to communicate. It's not just about its beauty. I actually just love harmony. I think it's one of the reasons I think I'm a good manager is I like teamwork and I like the diversity of voices. And in the case of a chorus, that's a literal thing. But I also have always believed that music can move people. And I think that that's been true of the gay choral movement for a really long time. And I considered myself to be very privileged to be a part of the chorus for a couple of years that I was there. Wow, that is such an awesome story. I cannot sing to save my life. And so I have such admiration for people who can. And that is just such an amazing story. And I love it because that was definitely an out of the box, off the map experience for you as well. It totally was. Well, 
Joan, thank you for spending time with us today. I'm, I'm just so grateful. I want to make sure that listeners know how they can get a hold of you. They can go to your website, joangary.com, which is your consulting firm's website. From there, they can access your blog, your acclaimed podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. They can learn more about your book, and they can also find the link to nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And that's the link, nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Dot com. Both of these websites will help you listeners gain the practical knowledge you need to make the world a better place, to get out on that field and make the world a better place. Additionally, Joan is providing our listeners with access to a free webinar about her thoughts on the future of the nonprofit sector and steps you can take now to come out stronger than ever before. That webinar is expected to go live June 2020, so make sure you check that out at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. There is more information up and available now. Joan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for the work that you do and bring in voices to the sector and helping leaders gain greater insight and fueling the leadership of our movement. It's really important. So thank you, Dolph. Thank you. Listeners, if you were too busy looking up YouTube videos of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, and by the way, they're really good, so you should look up those videos, and you did not catch all of those links, don't worry about it. You can find a transcript of today's conversation with Joan and all of the links we discussed on our website, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And if you love today's show, please take a moment to share it with a friend or a colleague. And if that's not your style, if you're not a sharer, well, I wish you were. But if you're not a sharer, leave us a review on your streaming app of choice. That, dear listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.